You're listening to RTE Lyric Live. In every photograph of the mature Maurice Ravel, he has a royal bearing, is impeccably groomed, not a hair out of place, and is dressed in a three-piece suit with handkerchief in the breast pocket, and usually with a cigarette in his hand. He had a natural taste for personal elegance. The costume was always appropriate to the occasion. Alfred Cortot recalled his 21-year-old colleague as a bantering, intellectual and somewhat distant young man who read Mallarmé and visited Eric Satie. Sir Lennox Barclay described him as very reserved and yet gregarious in that he loved to be surrounded by friends, a man of passionate loyalties but of seeming indifference to the larger issue of life, having in some ways a childlike simplicity, yet seeking to appear a sophisticated man of the world. He was born in the Basque country in the south of France. His parents moved to Paris when he was less than four months old, and the centre of his professional life would be that city. Ravel's attachment to the region of his birth was more sentimental than instinctive and was acquired in later life. He was determined to be Basque. He acquired a taste for the spicy food of the region, he was enthusiastic about its traditional music and dancing, and developed a passion for Pelota, the local ball game. Maurice Ravel never had any ambition other than music, and it seems did not have any other kind of formal education. He recorded, Even as a child I was sensitive to music, all kinds of music, and that I began to study piano at the age of six. Maurice's father, Joseph, who came from Switzerland, was a distinguished engineer, and Maurice took a keen interest in his father's world. He loved fine craftsmanship and was fascinated by machines. The activity of a factory at work inspired him. He claimed that it was a factory that inspired Bolero. He loved mechanical toys, and even when he grew up he was happy to demonstrate them to anybody who would take an interest in them. Three years after his death, Ravel's brother said, My brother admired everything that was mechanical, from simple toys to the most intricate machine tools. He was delighted to come with me to factories or to the expositions of machinery. He was happy to be in the midst of these movements and noises. But he always came out struck and obsessed by the automation of all these machines. Ravel himself, in an article written in 1933, wrote, In our search for fresh inspiration, we cannot overlook the appeal of modern life. Our cities are said to hum with traffic, machinery to purr, and although these sounds may seem pleasant or unpleasant, there is no reason why they should not be interpreted into great music. Ravel was not a prolific composer, the period between 1905 and 1914 was the most fruitful of his adult life. In a lecture delivered at the Rice Institute in Houston, Texas in 1928, Ravel described his method of composing. He said, In my own work of composition, I find a long period of conscious gestation in general is necessary. During this interval, I come gradually to see and with growing precision, the form and evolution which the subsequent work should have as a whole. I may be thus occupied for years without writing a single note of the work, after which the writing goes relatively rapidly. 
but there is still much time to be spent in eliminating everything that might be regarded as superfluous in order to realise as completely as possible the longed-for final clarity. However, in 1931 he wrote, I was also extremely lazy. I worked only like a taxi. That is, in order to make the slightest effort, I had to be paid. Ravel generally gave private lessons only to professional musicians. Ralph Vaughan Williams was one of his pupils. They subsequently became very good friends. He stayed with Vaughan Williams and his wife in London many times. Ursula Vaughan Williams was fascinated by Ravel's liking for English food. Steak and kidney pudding with stout at Waterloo Station was his idea of eating out in England. Manuel Rosenthal was another pupil who also became a close friend. He recollected that Ravel would say that he could not tell him how to compose, but would go to the piano and find better solutions for what Rosenthal was trying to achieve. Rosenthal found him cruel at times as a teacher. On one occasion, Ravel tore up one of Rosenthal's efforts at fugue writing, of which he had been particularly proud. Ravel took a keen interest in the technical developments surrounding recorded music. He recorded his own works and participated on many committees, including one that worked closely with recording engineers. This brought about a close collaboration between engineers and artists. He had an extensive collection of records, including a significant amount of popular music, particularly the chanson. first movement from Sonatine in F-sharp minor, played by the composer from a piano roll made in 1913. Ravel was a celebrity who was prized by the French music publishers Auguste and Jacques Durand. They offered him a retainer of 12,000 francs a year in 1905 in return for the right of first refusal on anything he would write subsequently. However, with characteristic integrity and so as not to feel pressurised into sacrificing quality for quantity, Ravel preferred to accept only half of that amount. Ravel himself wrote from London in 1923 that according to the newspapers, I am, if not a great conductor, at least a good one. I didn't expect so much. On his American tour in 1928, Serge Kursovitsky rather unflatteringly described him as not the greatest of French conductors, and likewise, Prokofiev noted, conducting was not one of Ravel's strong points. Ravel's natural instinct was to encourage young composers regardless of their attitude to him. His friend Chipakodepska reprimanded him for cheering a performance of Salad by Darius Mio, who, he complained, spends his time dragging you through the mud. He did his utmost to have the music of Ralph Vaughan Williams performed in Paris and there are many examples of him being helpful in furthering the careers of other young composers, most of whom are unheard of today. Ravel indulged in music criticism 
and remarked that it seemed odd that the task was infrequently entrusted to musicians. As critic, he was quite happy to scold his enemies and praise his friends. He treated Wagner's Parsifal at the opera with a mixture of respect and irreverence. He considered the opera less entertaining than La Vie Parisienne. He went on, All the same, it is less annoying than the Missa Solemnis, that inferior work by Beethoven, of which, however, so many good things have been said at social gatherings. He had a low opinion of Brahms and found a distressing poverty of form in César Franck's music. In 1912, when reviewing a performance of Francesca da Rimini at the Opera Comique, Puccini came in for criticism. Ravel wrote, As in the work of Monsieur Puccini, certain modern techniques, such as successions of augmented fifths, harp glissandi and abuse of the celesta, cover up, to some extent, the shortcomings of inspiration or of orchestration. Relations between Ravel and music critics were from time to time fraught. Daggers were drawn for thirty years between himself and Pierre Lalot, who was chief music critic of Laton, and the son of the composer Edouard Lalot. As early as 1906, Lalot accused Ravel of exploiting Debussy's keyboard innovations. Ravel wrote politely and privately, insisting that his Jeudeau had been written at the beginning of 1902, when all there was of Debussy was the three pieces pour le piano, a work which, I don't have to tell you, I admire passionately, but which, from a purely pianistic point of view, has nothing new in it. Unfortunately, Lalo published this private letter two years later. As a consequence, the relationship between Ravel and Debussy, already strained because Ravel had taken sides with Debussy's first wife when he left her for Emma Bardak, could not survive. Commenting extensively on Lalo in an interview twenty years later, Ravel concluded, He is truly not professional enough to furnish his readers with information of any great objective value. Ravel described himself as the most international of men, but very nationalistic in art, but only in art. He seems to have had some socialist leanings. He did find time in 1916 to take an unpopular position in rejecting the overtures of the National League for the Defence of French Music, which was seeking support for a ban on the public performance of contemporary German and Austrian music in France. He wrote, It would even be dangerous for French composers to ignore systematically the productions of their foreign colleagues and added, It is of little importance to me that Monsieur Schomburg, for example, is of Austrian nationality. He is still a high-quality musician whose very interesting discoveries have had a beneficial influence on certain Allied composers, even some of our own. Ravel was, however, no political innocent. Having taken this unpopular position, he then took the precaution of sending a copy of his letter to a trusted friend. In case, as he said, Somebody, even well-meaning, might quote some short fragments of sentences in a careless way to be chic, and if I weren't there to set matters straight, one cannot tell what might come of it. He could stand on his dignity. There was a lot of trouble and bitterness during the rehearsals for the ballet Daphnis and Chloe, commissioned by Serge Diaghilev for his ballet Russe. On the opening night, Ravel arrived marginally but deliberately late, and then, just as the curtain was rising, 
made a presentation to Messias Cert, whose portrait was painted by Renoir and Lutrec, amongst others. At the end of the performance, Ravel refused to appear on stage. He finally fell out with Diaghilev for rejecting La Valse in 1920. Five years later, when they met, Ravel refused to shake hands with him. Diaghilev challenged Ravel to a duel. Fortunately, the engagement did not take place. There was trouble with Arturo Toscanini over Bolero. In a letter to Ida Godepska, Ravel wrote that he knew that Toscanini was taking a ridiculous tempo and wanted to tell him so. When he remonstrated with Toscanini at the rehearsal, Toscanini apparently reacted by saying, You don't know anything about your own music. This is the only way to make it work. Ravel then refused to acknowledge Toscanini's interpretation publicly by not standing during the applause when it was performed at the Paris Opera in 1930. There was more trouble over the left-hand concerto. Paul Wittgenstein, who had commissioned the work, had made adjustments to the score without telling the composer. Marguerite Long remembered that after a private performance, Ravel told Wittgenstein unequivocally, but that is not it at all. Wittgenstein retorted that he was a veteran pianist and it doesn't sound well, to which Ravel responded, I am a veteran orchestrator and it sounds well, and attempted to stop Wittgenstein playing it in Paris. Wittgenstein told him that performers must not be slaves, to which Ravel retorted, performers are slaves. As Wittgenstein had sole rights to the concerto for six years, it would be 1937 before Jacques Fevrier was able to give what the composer considered the first true performance. There was also a falling out with Corto over this work. Corto insisted on playing it with both hands, which Ravel found totally unacceptable. He never married, and no love letters have been found. In a rare comment about marriage, he wrote to Madame Alfredo Casella in January 1919, Morality, this is what I practice, and what I am determined to continue. Artists are not made for marriage. We are rarely normal, and our lives are even less so. The relationship with his mother was a veritable cult. During the First World War, while he was on military service, he wrote, Only one thing really makes me suffer, and that is not being able to embrace my poor maman. His mother died in January 1917, and he never ceased to grieve for her. At the end of 1919, when he began to recover his creative impulse, he wrote to Ida Godebska, I'm thinking it will soon be three years since she went, and that my despair increases every day. I'm thinking about it even more since I have got back to work again and that I no longer have that dear, silent presence enveloping me with her infinite tenderness, which I see more clearly than ever was my only reason for living. You're listening to RTE Lyric Live 